So Henry Ford once said, you can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. He's so right about that, that we're never going to get in better shape. We're never going to improve our marriage. We're never going to finish our degree. We're never going to get out of debt. We're never going to get our dream job. We're never going to become the person we want to. We never are going to get spiritually healthier if we don't stop planning things and instead start doing things. So you'll build the life you want by doing, not just wanting to do or planning to do. But I will tell you this, there is an important ingredient, more important than the doing, is the howing. I'm determined during this series to butcher grammar, English as badly as I can, just as a test of my capacity to overcome my biases and snobbiness about proper grammar. But more important than the doing is the howing. In other words, how we do something is more important than what we do. And let me give you a perfect example of that. Back in 2002, almost two years before MySpace hit the scene. How many are old enough to remember MySpace? Yeah, well, that's okay, so we got an older congregation. All right, great. So you might even be old enough, or maybe you got a glimpse of this fleeting company called Friendster. Friendster existed almost two years before MySpace, and they had almost everything to be the largest social media. They were considered the pioneers of modern social media. They had almost everything they needed to make it a absolute huge success. They were so innovative and so good at what they were doing. Now remember, this was back in 2002, so this was huge, huge money. Google offered them, in less than a year of being a company, Google offered them $30 million to buy their idea and buy their company from them. And Friendster made the catastrophic mistake of saying no. That wasn't their biggest mistake though. Their biggest mistake was this, that in designing their platform, they refused to offer the feature that we all know and in many ways love is that your newsfeed, your page would update with people's newsfeed coming into you in real time. So in other words, the only way to find out what was going on with somebody was to go to their individual page. So if you had 200 friends, you'd have to check 200 pages to find out what their lunch looked like or, uh, or who, who they were mad at politically or whatever. Um, or if you wanted anyone to know about your life, you would have to go send messages and send these posts directly to these people. It was exhausting and it soon cost everybody their attention, people lost attention, they didn't wanna to have to go through all of that, and they went by the thousands to MySpace, and Friendster was no more. So the how they did, their innovative, creative, they were meeting a need, they were doing a good thing, they were connecting people from all over the world, they have innovated the thing that we now consider to be just part of our daily lives, and that's connecting with people anywhere in the country. They were the innovators of that, but they didn't do the how right. You see, they kind of messed it all up. Jesus was not a big fan of just the doing. He was a really big fan of the howing. 
How do we know this to be true? Because back to back to back, Jesus gives these illustrations that you're going to find in Matthew 6, and I'm just going to read through them quickly, so don't get freaked out that we're going to be here reading the Bible all day, all right? When you give to those who are poor, don't announce that you're giving. Don't be like the hypocrites. I want you to kind of watch for that in all these passages. Your giving should be done in private. Your father can see what's done in private and he will reward you. All right, next one. These are all back to back. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners and pray loudly. They want people to see them. The truth is that that's all the reward they'll get. But when you pray, you should go into your room and close the door. Then pray to your father. He is in there in that private place. He can see what's done in private and he will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the people who don't know God. They say the same things again and again. And they think that if they say it enough, their God will hear them. And then finally is this. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. They said they would take ashes and smear it under their eyes to make them, their eyes look sunken in and they would look like they hadn't eaten in days and people would admire them for their fasting. And I tell you the truth, this is the only reward they will get. But when you fast, Comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will even notice that you're fasting except for your father who knows what you do in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. So obviously Jesus is saying, don't give generously, don't worry about praying and you shouldn't fast, right? No, he's not saying any of those things. As a matter of fact, Jesus is saying, do all of those things, but the what you're doing is not as important as the how you're doing it because the hypocrites are doing the what. And they're doing lots of what's. They're doing what's all over the place. And they're whatting in your face and they're whatting here and they're whatting on the street corner and they're whatting this and they're whatting that. They are doing all of the stuff that it seems you're supposed to do. They're just not doing it the way that you're supposed to to do it. Jesus said there is more importance in how you do it. In other words, the heart and the intent, the mindset, the character, all that you are should go into all that you do. You and I want to do good things. You and I want to do the right things. You and I should want this year to be full of just doing good things, just doing the right thing. Just get out there and do stuff. But I got to warn you, before you go doing stuff, you've got to get your heart and mind right so that how you do it will make what you do actually matter. Let me say that again. You can do a lot of what's. You're going to get busy. I will tell you that you probably spent 2023 doing tons of what's. And you might ask yourself the question, what did it all add up to? And that might be hard to calculate. So we're going to talk about how to do what you do. Take out your notes if you don't already have them out. We're going to talk about making everything you do matter by doing it the right way. Doing things the right way means I just do everything without, number one, weighing someone's worthiness first. Weighing someone's worthiness first. So listen, you might know someone lazy in your life. And you might even think that you at times have been 
lazy or ineffective at making any meaningful change in your life. And I'm going to tell you where laziness comes from or ineffectiveness comes from. It comes from the mindset that what you're doing doesn't have purpose or value or enough purpose and value to motivate you to get up and do more. As a matter of fact, you might just withdraw from doing anything at all because if you don't believe that what you can do will actually make a difference, change your life, improve your life, make things better, make anyone else's life better, you just won't do anything at all. But if someone believes that what they do, that their life has a purpose and a meaning, then they believe that every moment matters and you can't afford to waste any moment, right? If you believe that your life has a purpose bigger than maybe what you know and, and you belong to something bigger, that you believe that every single moment matters. You can't waste a moment if you believe that you have purpose. That would be wasting it, right? If you're just doing something that doesn't have purpose. Here's the problem though with followers of Christ. We sometimes wait to hear our purpose as if God has this mysterious, magical message to give us this divine calling. And once we know our divine calling, once we have our, our ministry, then we can get out there and start doing good stuff. And so in effect, we waste a bunch of time waiting for this crazy divine calling when I have to tell you this, our calling is to do good to do good things. And you don't even have to really think about what's good. Helping people is always good. Telling the truth is always good. If your wife asks you, does this dress make my butt look big? Then Jesus understands if you lie in that moment, but. Otherwise, <laughs> Ephesians 2.10 says this, this is an off morning, so if you're visiting us, please come back, check us out again when I've doubled my Adderall dosage. So, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he always wanted us to live. This is why he sent Christ to make us what we are. Can I tell you, it's so specific Doing good is so important to God that it literally says that's why Jesus came, to help us live as we should live. How should we live? Living our lives doing good. I, we have as Christians taken grace, we don't apply it where we should, that grace removes from us the consequence and the fear of sin and what sin can do to us. Instead, we obsess over sin. We obsess over stopping sin. We obsess over not sinning. Instead of obsessing over being who God wants us to be and doing what God calls us to do. Grace enables you to just be good even though that we are not in ourselves good. Isn't that amazing? Instead, we chase our guilt and we feel bad about the things we do and we think Christianity is about behavior modification. Christianity is about freeing you to be the good that the world desperately needs. But as Christians, we go, well, goodness doesn't get you to heaven. No, it doesn't, but it makes you a Christian. 
if you're not doing good, you can't possibly be a Christian because that's why Jesus came to liberate us to do good. Amen? James 1.19, thank you for the six of you that agreed with me. James 1.19 through 20 says this. My dear friends, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, or slow to get angry. Because if you're angry, you cannot do any of the good things God wants done. Can I tell you what James is saying right here? He says that genuinely listening, genuinely listening, you're going to do one of a couple things. You're going to react emotionally and start arguing. You're going to try to set them straight. You're going to tell them how they're wrong. And he says you should be slow slow to speak because none of that will be good or helpful. He says, and then be extra slow. There's another translation that says you should even be slower to get angry. In other words, can I tell you where anger comes from? Judgment. Anger always, always, always comes from judgment. Find me a time when anger didn't come from judgment. Judgment that that was a wrong thing, that they did a wrong thing, they said a wrong thing, they acted in a wrong way. Anger always comes from judgment. If you listen to someone and you can't hear the need, you can't hear their desperation crying out, all you can hear is what you need to respond to and argue with and you're getting angry and judgmental, you can't help them. You can't do good things. So James says, just listen. If you listen hard enough, you're going to hear in them the need to be loved, the need to be appreciated, the need to be affirmed, the need to have a voice, the need to be recognized, the need to know that there's hope for their life. There is a need they're trying to say. They just might not know how to say it. And if we listen, we can help them. But if we react, if we judge, if we condemn, if we try to teach, if we try to correct, if we try to straighten the world out, nothing good's going to come of that. Number two is this, doing things the right way means I just do everything without, number two, wondering about the what if. Most of us fear outright failure um, in doing the things we do, but more than outright failure, we're fearing that we won't succeed at having meaning in what we do. In other words, if we feel like what we would do would fail, but there would be meaning to the failure, we would still probably move forward and try it at least. But if we feel like anything we do will be meaningless, then we won't even try to fail. So what we do is we paralyze ourselves with questions predicting whether this will have success in its meaning. What if I put all this work into my marriage? What if I do all of this? What if I give up my pride? What if I forgive and my spouse doesn't even notice? They don't appreciate what I'm doing. They don't reciprocate. They don't put any work into the marriage. So we talk ourselves into not doing anything. What if I do all this good thing, these good things for people and they reject my kindness or worse yet, they accuse me of being a hypocrite, a goody two-shoes, self-righteous. You go around doing all this good stuff. You're not that good. You're not any better than me. 
What if I become really generous and I just give where there's need? Every time there's an opportunity, I give. I give to people in need. I give to the church when there's a need. I give, give, give. And then something catastrophic happens in my life. And there's nothing there for me. What if people start walking all over me and taking advantage of me because I'm just out doing good and they confuse good for weakness? What if I'm busy doing all of these things and I miss the more important things I'm supposed to be doing? What if I do this once and everyone will expect me to just keep doing it again and again and again? If I help this person, then they're gonna expect me to help next time and next time and next time. Early in ministry, I got sort of trapped in that mindset. People would come to the church and ask for help. And it would be kind of a one-off where it was a pretty big thing and it was a pretty big expense and I just had a rule. I'd say, no, we I, I, I tell the staff, no, we can't, we can't do that. Because if we do it for them, then honestly, we're gonna have to do it for everyone that asks. Who, who said so? <laughs> who said that if you do one thing for one person, you're now obligated to do that for everybody? I love what Andy Stanley said. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I love that. It liberated me to start helping people. We can't always do the same thing for everyone. But when there's a need in front of me, I can just respond to that need. If we're able, we will help that need. And if there's another need that's similar to that, I just say, oh my gosh, I wish we could help. Is there something else we can do? I want to help in this situation. I can't give you this, but we could certainly give you that. You just do what you can in the moment. And I love this passage when Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 34. Give your entire attention to what God's doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. I love that. Just the good thing right in front of you. Just do it. Just do it. Just don't even think about it. Can I tell you, I give you permission not to even pray about it. God's like, you're asking me if you should help them? A bus ran over their leg, pulled them out of, yes, you don't have to pray, Father. Is this a ministry you've called me to? I'm not really a, I don't know how to have medical training, Lord. I consider myself more of a singer. God, if there's a singing, should I sing to them, Lord? Just freaking help, do good. I've told you about, I don't know why this happens to me. Medical emergencies, always happen around me. We have a staff, as a staff, we've taken CPR. Can I tell you I remember that much of it? Staying alive, that part I remember. Ha, 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 staying alive, right? That all, that's it. So if they want me to sing to them and do heart compressions, I can do that. This big old boy in teriyaki domo, Lisa and I are eating, he's walking with a cane, the guy's like six foot nine and 450 pounds, and he just goes, uh, uh, and he crashes and falls on the ground. I start taking his pulse. I'm yelling for people to call 911. I'm talking to him. I turn him over to the paramedics when they get there. Like I'm Quincy MD, like I'm a doctor. <laughs> a lady was choking. I was meeting with someone in the church over at uh, Beach Hut Deli. She's like, tiny little lady, I just start giving her the Heimlich maneuver. I was like, I think I'm doing it right. <laughs> like for the first 30 seconds, I was not doing it right because nothing was coming out. And then I just did, that's not my ministry. <laughs> this is. But what if I was like, Lord, 
I don't feel like it's working within my giftings. Would it be okay if I just, it's not a good season for me, God? Number three, <laughs> doing things the right way means I just do everything without waiting around for my trophies. So I always laugh a little bit when I hear people mock Gen Z and millennials for being a participation trophy generation. Because I'm like, where, where do you think they came from? They didn't hatch in a lab somewhere. We raised them. I have kids that are both Gen Z and millennials. If they are trophy participation kids, then that's because I wanted them to be rewarded for doing the bare minimum. That's, I didn't want them to keep score in soccer because I wanted them to feel good that everybody's a winner on the soccer field. That's, they, they got to that play. They didn't demand that as five-year-olds. They didn't unionize and come together and demand ribbons and trophies for everything they did. They had parents who wanted them to be rewarded for doing nothing at all. So when we mock that, we mock ourselves, really. Psychologists say it's because we were raised by parents who maybe weren't generous enough with praise and with reward and with letting us know we did a good job. So we swung the pendulum the wrong way and got a little overzealous about our kids being rewarded even when they hadn't done anything to be rewarded for. It's not right to get rewarded for doing nothing at all. As a matter of fact, I would say that there's a real problem when we want to be rewarded for the things we deserve to be rewarded for by forcing people to reward us when we don't deserve to be rewarded. In other words, there's times when we should be praised and times when we shouldn't. But if we use praise and reward and our trophies, whatever they look like, to be our motivator, then we'll only do good things if we know we're going to get something out of it. And that's not doing good at all. Jesus confronted that drive in us that makes us want a reward for simply being who we're already supposed to be. You see, you shouldn't get rewarded for having good character and being a good person and doing what's generally accepted as good. That's just being decent. That's just being who God called you to be. And when you are good, which seems to be the exception to the rule today. When you are good, anytime you are good, God always sees it. And can I tell you this? God's an excellent scorekeeper, better than people are. So when your spouse doesn't thank you, when your kids don't thank you, when the people you help don't thank you, can I tell you that God will reward you for the good that you do? Listen to what it says in Luke 14, 12 through 14. He was telling this to a Pharisee who had hosted a dinner and people were clamoring to get to the front of the table where the Pharisee sat, the host, and Jesus sat, the guest of honor. People were trying to push their way and put themselves in seats near them. 
When you host a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If they do, or if you do, they might invite you to a party of their own and you'll be repaid for your kindness. In other words, you'll be in the seat of honor then. Instead, invite the poor, the amputees, the cripples, the blind. Then you'll be blessed because they can never repay you. Your reward will come from God at the resurrection of the just and the good. Jesus says, go out of your way to be kind to those who cannot repay the kindness. Go out of your way to do good for those who don't have the capacity or the finances or the opportunity to do good for you. Do it because that helps you flex your good muscle with no reward anticipated. And then can I tell you, then you'll be able to at any time with any person be good without the anticipation of something in response, without something being given back to you, without something being put uh, 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 into your life that reminds you you did well. Fourth and finally is this. Doing good things the right way means I just do everything without worrying if my motives are perfect. So I just told you about how you need to make sure your motives are right. <laughs> but that can get in our heads. I once heard someone say that everything, everything we do is selfish. Even the things that seem unselfish. We give to someone in need because we wanted to help them. We wanted to give them something to meet their need. Maybe we wanted the feeling of knowing that we did a good thing. We wanted it though. That's the key is even when we're doing something that's seemingly unselfish, it is to satisfy a want in our own life. That's self-serving, not selfless. I see the logic. But... If we think about that every time we're getting ready to do something, then we think we're never able to do good without it serving us in some way. Listen, I've had people tell me, Pastor, I gotta ask you, I've been praying and I feel like God's telling me I should start trusting him more with finances and I haven't been tithing, I wanna start tithing. I just wanna make sure that's from the Lord and not just me. And I'm like, you think you want to get, you, you want to? Or you think the devil's whispering in your ear? Give more, give tithe, give more to the church. That's no, that's not you. That's not selfishness. Selfishness wants to keep, selfishness wants to hoard, selfishness wants to protect, selfishness wants to take. When you're motivated to do a good thing, when you're motivated to be selfless, when you're motivated to be generous, when you're motivated to be helpful, can I tell you that that's typically not coming from your selfish flesh? That's the goodness of God being expressed. That's what you were created for. That's how you were created. Sin, which is missing the mark. That's all it means. That's all sin is, is just missing the intended path. Sin interferes by moving us off in distracted ways at distracted moments, losing our focus on what we were created to do, what we're capable of doing without changing anything about ourselves. 
You don't have to become more righteous and more holy and all these things we put on ourselves to make ourselves feel like we're closer to God. You know what makes us closer to him? Being like him. And you know what he wants us to be like? I just read the passage. Jesus came so that we could do good for each other, for others. And not for the people that are most likely to recognize it, pat us on the back, thank us for it, realize how good we are for doing it, but the people who are least likely, for the people who are least deserving, for the people who make us angry and the people who we don't understand and the people who maybe we wouldn't feel comfortable with them, having them in our home for Thanksgiving dinner, for the people that challenge our thinking, for the people that don't vote the way we vote, for the people that don't dress the way we dress or identify the way we identify. That's who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus spent time with. I would love nothing more than to fill this room with those who have been marginalized and wounded and rejected. The people that Jesus described that we should be inviting to our banquets. This is our banquet. This is where we feed and give. This is where we pour out and we love. This is where we connect. This is the banquet where we go out and we do good for those who will never be able to pay us back. Those who might not even know what good looks like or sounds like or feels like because they've never experienced it without some sort of manipulation attached to it, without sort of judgment attached to it, without expectation attached to it. I would love for the Pharisees of today to walk in here on any given Sunday and say, why does your church hang out with such scum? So many notorious sinners. And for us to proudly and confidently say, oh, this is who we're here for. This is what we do. This is what Summit exists for. You're all good. You've got Jesus all over you. Seems like you're righteous on your way to heaven. Good for you. You're probably not gonna feel welcome here. This is a place for the broken, for the needy, for the weary, for the abused, for the neglected, for the rejected. This is a place for those who have screwed up and don't know how to start over. And if we can't be that, I think it'd be better if we took what we have, we hand it off to people who can do something good with what we have, and we go find places that we can continue to feel good about ourselves and feel like we're doing all that we can and the world's just lost and we can't do more for them. I mean, they don't want it. They're rejecting it. Clearly, they're not electing the right presidents. And so if they don't do that, how can Jesus ever come back? I mean, my God, we got to get the right person in office or the world won't be saved. But I don't think that's who we are. I don't think that that's what anyone wants.
I think that like me, you want this next year to be marked by not the goodness the church, capital C, does, but the church does. You see, no one will come here to hear me. That's not what draws anyone in. As great as our worship team is, nobody's going to come hear them. And as great as our women's and our youth ministry and our children's ministry, that's not why people, people will come because there is something here that they need in their life. And that's love and acceptance and forgiveness. And they don't need to qualify or perform to get that here. And if you think they do, it means that you believe you do. And I want to tell you, you don't. I love you just the way you are. I love you for the mistakes you've made and that you will make. Because that's what grace looks like. That's what Jesus did for me. And how arrogant to think I can do anything different with those in my life. The goodness that you can do will be transformative. You don't ever have to say the name of Jesus in order for them to know that there is something about you that's different. To serve like a ninja. I always wanted to do this ministry. Maybe somebody here will help me start it. I wanna do something called lawn ninjas. Where there's like two or three guys, girls, ladies, teenagers, whoever. We throw a couple lawnmowers and weed whackers in a truck. We pull up to somebody's lawn. We get out. And we just, we bolt. Maybe it would be cool to do it with ninja mask too. So that the neighbors are like, it was the craziest freaking thing I've ever seen in my life. Literally ninjas got out of this little Toyota pickup. One dude was swinging a sword at your grass. The others were mowing it, but some really weird one was swinging. And just go around, and I would love it if it was like on Facebook, these ninjas cut my lawn. Does anyone know who that is? And nobody knows. Well, I mean, you would know now, but wouldn't that be awesome? Do you know that God wants to use you to do ninja things in people's life? Do good because... It doesn't serve you because there's no thanks coming, because there's no reward, because it's not part of some big agenda. Just do it. Just do good. Just do good all the time. And I can tell you that you will become who you want to become. You will achieve what you want to achieve because God always puts favor on those doing good. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Give yourself a second. As you're in this prayerful moment, I want to close with this passage that Paul said to a church in which people in the church, troublemakers, were judging him, saying that he had poor motives. 
And this is what he said. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or actually by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment at this point. In other words, I don't judge myself either. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't even prove I'm right because it's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So for you, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time, meaning before the Lord returns. For he will bring out our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give each one whatever praise is due. And that was Paul's way of saying, those who are judging are usually the ones who need to worry most about God revealing their secrets. But those who are just doing good, God will reveal their motives that it was just to do good. And then he'll hand out the praise that's due. Can I tell you that the thing you need to worry least about is what your motives are in doing the things you do? If I promise if you're doing good, you're just out doing good, you don't need to worry about what other people think. You don't need to quit. You're gonna be wrong about your motives. The Bible says the heart is the most deceitful thing there is. You don't know, you can't even judge yourself, only God will judge. So just get busy doing what he said to do, do good in the lives of people. Do it when they see it, do it when they don't see it, do it when you'll get thanks, do it when you won't, do it for the poor, do it for the rich, do good all the time, every time, just do it. You will be amazed at the difference it will make in your life. The howing is always more important than the doing. Do it because you know this is how God created you to live. There's a lot of other things you could be doing. None of them will matter as much as doing good. Christ Jesus, I pray for every person in this room whether they are yet in a relationship with you or not, that they know leaving here with absolute confidence they were created for a purpose and a calling, and that calling is to live exactly as you've created them to live, to do good. And goodness is not judged by me, it's not judged by them, it's not judged by people in their life, it's judged only by you. And you want us to succeed at doing good. And so you'll give us opportunity and you'll give us favor and you'll give us blessing and you'll give us moments that we just know we're supposed to act unprepared, unqualified, unrehearsed. We just have to do good. It's gonna be scary and intimidating and it might go horribly wrong by human standards. They might reject it or yell at us while we walk away and we go, wow, I was obedient, I did good, that felt amazing. Thank you, God. Give us those opportunities, trust us with those opportunities. Let us be good for you so that we can meet the need of goodness in people's lives so that what people so desperately need that they're not getting that we can be ambassadors of that goodness, that grace, that mercy, that kindness, that loving 
tender heart that you demonstrated all through your ministry and your work on the cross. And that's my prayer for every single person. In Jesus' name, amen.